The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. I want to open with a a story of something that happened to me a number of years ago. And uh, I may not have told you this story before, but uh, but it's a true story. Um, Several years ago, I was a young adult. I was in an office and an old man approached me and he grabbed a pair of scissors and stabbed me in the face. Now, a couple of you laughed just then, um, which is concerning that you would think that was funny. Um, If you are a guest here, we struggle with compassion as a church, okay? Like, don't have strong mercy gift. Um, There's some people that thought that was funny. Okay, but that is what happened. I was in an office, an old man grabbed a pair of scissors and stabbed me in the face. And uh, all of that is true. That's exactly what happened. Now you might be saying, okay, like, um, is, there, is there more to the story? And uh, yes, there is more to the story. In fact, um, if I gave you the rest of the story, it would make a lot more sense. But I just wanna hang in the tension for the second of if I just reduce the story down to a few hand-picked collection of facts, Even though everything I just stated is completely true, I haven't lied, I've said everything that was true, but I've just over-reduced the story a little bit um, to lead your mind to think something else. And when I just reduce that story to a few collection of, of facts, you say, man, that sounds crazy. Okay, and I understand why that would sound crazy, but here's the rest of the story. I had just gotten my wisdom teeth out, and I went back to the doctor's office a couple weeks later, and I had the sutures still in, and uh, the orthodontist or oral surgeon, who was a very old man, that actually is important for the story, um, he said, hey, do you want me to take the sutures out? They're gonna dissolve, but I can take them out. And I said, yeah, I would like for you to take them out. They really bother me. And so he grabbed a pair of suture scissors, and he brought them up to my mouth, and his hand was going like this, which made me very concerned. And then he stabbed me in the lip as he was going into my mouth, which also made me concerned for what exactly happened when I was unconscious and he was operating on my face, okay? But luckily everything turned out okay. But he actually did stab me in the mouth, apologized, which I guess made up for it, and then went proceeded to take some of the sutures out until it was so painful I begged him to stop. Okay, so everything I told you was true. I was in an office, an old man grabbed a pair of scissors and stabbed me in the face with it. All of that is true. If you reduce a series of facts, leave out some of the rest of the story, it sounds very strange. And it's actually a fun thing to do, okay? Like if you get your appendix out, okay, go into work and say, yes, yeah, some lady stabbed me in the stomach and then it took a bunch of my money, okay? It's a fun thing to do. You can do that. It's flu season. You're like, I was in Publix. I got shot in the arm, okay? Like... It's crazy out there. Publix is like the Wild West. Okay, you can say all kinds of things. All you have to do is just reduce it down to a few uh, key facts, and you can lead someone to think that it means something other than it is. It can make it completely crazy. Now, I bring all this up because the subject that we're talking about today is often handled just like that. In fact, I'd argue often, well, almost always, outside of the church, and I think often inside the church. It's reduced down to just a couple key over-reduced pieces that just seems like really crazy with just those pieces. And it's not fully understood until you bring it into the the full context of what's stated. And I'm not saying like you have to dig deep and pull out some mysterious pieces of the culture that you don't know unless, you know, you're a seminary professor or something. No, I'm like, just if you just read the fullness of what it says, rather than just lifting out a couple details, it makes a whole lot more sense. Now, um, here's where we are. Before we get to what we're going to talk about, let me just review through this Faith and Logic series, because this particular one, this particular Faith and Logic series, each week is kind of a building block on the other, and we don't have time to kind of go through all of it, but let's just roll back um, just a little bit. But part one, what we talked about was um, as a culture, as a generation, we have to decide where you find truth. 
Is truth found inside, like follow your own truth, be true to yourself? Is truth found inside or is truth found externally? And we discuss that with logic and faith. Is there, is there such a thing as a fixed external truth that I should actually conform myself what's inside? I should actually change what's inside to that external truth, or should I look inside, find my own truth, and just be true to that? And we wrestled with that, what the Bible says about that, and wrestled with it logically. And here's what we said, briefly. If you didn't, uh, if you missed part one, I would encourage you to go back and check it out. Here's what we said briefly. We said, actually, it is not logical, sustainable, or healthy to find your truth inside. Because no one actually truly follows that all the way out. Because if I look inside and what I find is bias or prejudice. If I look inside, I find bitterness, I find anger, I find violence. If I look inside and find those things, I should conform that and change that and find health. And what the Bible tells, tells us is all of us have that kind of brokenness on the inside. So man, what we're longing for is one fixed external truth. One single one because of the exhaustion of trying to deal with all that's inside. We want one fixed external truth. And the most logical place would be if the inventor of the universe said, hey, here's what's true. That if every person conformed, they changed what they thought and believed to that external truth, if we could just find one that would be life-giving to everyone, empowering to everyone, healing to everyone, and at the same time brought harmony between everyone. And that's actually what the claim is of the scripture. And even though often the scripture can be used wrongly as a weapon when rightfully understood and the power of the Holy Spirit rightfully understood, it is life-giving and bringing, uh, empowering and bringing harmony to those who conform their lives to it. Then we said, okay, let's apply that to the, some of the most intimate parts of our life, to the issue of gender, to male femininity and masculinity. And what we looked at in week two is say, hey, if we're going to step into that, let's first look at what was Jesus' stance towards femininity. And when we watched how Jesus handled the women of his day, he was scandalously empowering. And that that, when understood in context, that is then the, the, the flow of the New Testament, lifting up and honoring and empowering women. In week three, then, we said, okay, masculinity and femininity, if it's, those are God's categories, then God then defines, gets to define those categories. We don't look inside and define them for ourselves. We also don't let tradition or culture define them. We actually see what is, how does God define them, and we go all the way back to the very first chapter, one of the first things ever said in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that mass, men and women are both made in the image of God. And what we learn is that both men and women are then equal. They're both reflecting the image of God. At the same time, what that means is we should appreciate that there's also distinction. There are things that God uniquely is wanting to communicate about his glorious being through femininity. There's things that God is uniquely wanting to communicate about his glorious being through masculinity. And even though there's many ways that men and women are the same, there are distinctions that God is expressing his power and his beauty and his glory through femininity and masculinity. And even those, those attributes of femininity may be expressed in varying capacities among different women. And those expressions of masculinity will be expressed in varying capacities through, through men, through, through different men. Both of those are reflecting something of God. And that those are things that we should look to. Not using the Bible to, con to uh, simply affirm traditional culture but using the things of God to critique tradition and culture and refine our own views of our own identity. And so that brings us to part four. How then, men and women, how then do we relate to one another? And particularly, how then do we relate to each other in the most intimate capacity that we find our relationship to one another in the context of marriage? What we want is not what our generation says. What we want is not what tradition says. What we want is what God says. So let's open to the Bible. And here's where I, what I, the passage I want to hit. I want to hit one of the most commonly addressed passages on this subject. And I want us to see it for all 
that it says, and I think when we see that, it will require a step of faith, but we'll also see the incredibly, incredible, glorious, life-giving logic behind it. Open with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to open with verse 21. Open to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Here's what it says. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's pause there for a second because this is a very, very important verse leading into the next section. This verse is a hinge into the whole following section of Ephesians that talks about a number of relationships. It talks about a number of uh, relationships inside the home, in the workplace, a number of relationships, and the overarching kind of uh, guideline for those relationships is that Christians will enter into those relationships and there's ways that they submit to each other. Now, this is not the only place that this word submitting is used throughout the Bible in a number of different relationships. Um, one of them that's very important is found in the book of Romans. And this is talking about just authority in general. I, this is used uh, multiple times in just these two verses. Let me just read it to you. Romans 13 says, let every person be subject. That's the word used in Ephesians 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In other words, um, and this is an important passage, this would be important for us to study in a whole nother series, a whole nother sermon in general, because we as a generation, probably because we look inside and are very hyper-individualistic and we look inside to find truth, that leaves us as a generation pretty much across the board skeptical of all authority. I mean, all authority. But what scripture is speaking is that Christians will be very sensitive to the authority structures because they're going primarily because they trust that the Lord is working through them. Not because the, the Lord agrees with everything done by every leader, but because a Christian trusts that God is in control and if they find themselves under a particular leader of some kind, they're trusting that God is in control, that what's happening is going to turn out for their good, and that God has a redemptive plan for that. Now, we might say, well, easy for you to say, Paul, from back in the first century. You don't deal with the leaders that we deal with. I mean, I, I've got some, maybe you say, I've got some really tough leaders in my life. That's easy for you to say, but actually, time out. Not easy for Paul to say. He's writing to the Romans, the Caesar in Rome at this time is a guy by the name of Nero, possibly the worst leader in human history, one of the worst ever, and one under his reign that this guy, Paul, who's writing this, will ultimately be executed. And so if he can say that about Nero and say, hey, I am going to honor authority in my life because I'm trusting God then that should make us stop and say, you know, yeah, uh, it, you know, my relationships. Now, maybe you're still saying, yeah, you still don't know my boss. I would take Nero instead of the boss that I have in my life. Okay, maybe, okay, could be. But what this is saying is we trust the Lord, whether, and we teach authority to our children. We want our children to trust the teacher that's in their life or the coach that's in their life. We want, uh, we want to teach um, re respect for authority, whether it's civil authority, whether it's um, uh, state authority of various kinds. We want to, whether national authority, we want to trust, uh, we want to trust God, and we want to, in doing that, honor authority. Again, not because God is approving of everything that's being done, but God is going to work through it. Okay, ultimately we know who is the ultimate authority. It's Jesus is on the throne, so we're at rest. Now here's what this does not mean. This does not mean that we support everything an authority does. 
This does not mean blind obedience to everything an authority does. We would, you know, Paul himself ends up in prison. You know, he is not going to walk in sin and follow blindly a leader into sin. And it doesn't mean that we don't speak up and stand against if there's an issue of justice or righteousness and stand against authority. What it does mean is we honor and respect and we trust that the Lord is working through those authorities. And in any way we can, we honor and respect that authority. That is the general stance that we take. Okay. What Paul is doing is saying that same dynamic of trusting the Lord with an authority plays out in our interpersonal relationships of various kinds. And by, by respecting and honoring authorities in our lives, as we do that, we're trusting Jesus by doing that. We're doing that not always because the authority that we're under is honorable. We don't honor because they're honorable. We honor because we're honoring Jesus by doing that. Why is that so critical? The same word used for how we relate to each other is actually the same word used in 1 Corinthians to describe Jesus' relationship with the Father. It says that the Father brings everything into submission to the Son, and the Son submits to the Father. Now think about that for a second. Um, think about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one equally God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus is fully God, equally God, but yet he submits to the Father. That is not bringing his equality down. That's not a statement of value. That's a statement of function. Okay, back to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 sets out the context, sets out the context of our relationships that we submit to one another. Now, the first category of relationships that he's going to talk about is the most intimate one. And the first context he's going to talk about is marriage. So we already are told from the outset, there's a way that wives submit to husbands and husbands submit to wives because he's, he's prepared us as we go into this text. There's ways distinctly that they submit to one another. How do those play out? Well, let's look. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. This passage starts off by saying, wives, submit to your husbands. That's not a new piece of information. The previous verse set the tone for that. The previous verse said, husbands, you're going to submit, there's a way you're going to submit to your wife. Wives, there's a way you're going to submit to your husbands. So when he says, wives, submit to your husbands, that's redundant. We already know that that's what's coming in this text. So then in what way does a wife submit to her husband? And it gives the picture that it's going to give more fully in the next section when it describes the husband's function and how he submits himself to his wife. The picture is a relationship between Christ and the church. He says marriage is essentially, and this is a, a thought throughout scripture, it's described as Jesus and the church, described as a bridegroom and a bride. That relationship together, um, marriage is a picture of that. And so how will this play out? Jesus lays down his life for the church. We as a church are wooed to him by his self-sacrifice won over to him by his incredible love. And so honor him and follow him. And in my relationship with Jesus, I'm sure as if you've been journeying with Jesus, um, man, I, I could not love Jesus more. And there are still times when he's at work in my life when I'm like, Jesus, that's not what I would have picked. But I love you and I trust you. I'm going to follow you. Here's what he's saying about the, he says there's a similar, not identical, a similar dynamic in marriage. He says husbands are supposed to be modeling the, the loving 
relationship that Jesus modeled. Wives are modeling that loving response of the church, and wives are called to follow their husbands to let him lead. But listen, notice what it says. Not because they trust absolutely their husband, but because they trust Jesus. Because there's not a husband here that is trustworthy enough to deserve the absolute trust of their wives. In fact, uh, wives, ladies, the first man in your life is always Jesus. He's the first man in your life. And husbands, that's the way we should want it. Because we can't, we can't do what Jesus can do. And so ladies, let your husband, let him lead is what this is saying. Now, I've already lost some of you. You say, look, okay, I hear you, um, but you were saying something about empowering earlier. You said something about life-giving and freeing, and, and uh, yeah, I don't know how these fit together because that sounds archaic, patriarchal. It sounds like some antiquated tradition that should be left behind. It sounds like there's no way that's going to turn out to not end oppressively, suppressively, restrictingly for women. Like, it just seems like you read those verses, I'm not seeing a way around that at all. And you know, honestly, I'm not saying, I mean, this is faith and logic. I mean, there are parts to this passage that require faith, that's for sure. However, here's the problem. Often when this subject is talked about, those verses I just read are the only pieces of the discussion that's lifted out. And so all that's lifted out from the story is this subje this, the, the um, subject of how wives submit to their husbands, not the full story of then how husbands are submitting to their wives. And so when it's just the, these pieces lifted up, of course it sounds crazy. And those are the only pieces that are lifted up in our culture. And sometimes, tragically, the only pieces that are lifted up in a church context as well. But let's look at the broader scripture because, ladies, if that feels oppressive, suppressive, not empowering, you need to hear what he says next to the men. Men, he has a lot more words for you and I. And when you hear this, buckle up. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What did this, it kind of summarizes at the end, but what is this ultimately saying? Okay, husbands, here's, how our, here's our function when it comes to our wife. It is to love our wives. Now, most husbands, maybe all of them, maybe every husband would be like, oh, I love my wife. In fact, maybe you've heard it said, yeah, I, I told her when we got married, and I said, if anything changes, I'll let her know. I said, love you. I said it the one time, like that means something, okay? 
So I think every husband has a concept of, yeah, of course, I, I love my wife. Or maybe it's like, oh, okay, I know, it's not that crazy, but you know, I, how I love my wife is, you know, I, I'm, I work hard and I try to provide, I provide for the kids, I try to keep a roof over, the, over our, our heads and I'm, I'm trying to be a provider. I mean, that's an act of love, right? Yes, of course, that is, it is an act of love to be a, a hardworking, industrious person, of course, be a provider. Some say, yeah, but it's more than that. I mean, there's affection too. I, I tell her that I love her every single day. In fact, Valentine's Day is coming up, which for some of you was, that was just a free freebie right there. Okay, Valentine's Day is coming up, okay? And you know, I get flowers. I mean, with flowers, you know, and I, I set the reservation. So I'm loving and we go on date nights. And so like, I, I try to do those things. Like I, I, I'm a, a loving uh, husband. I try to love. And those things are not bad but they're not what this says. This says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Can we review? Jesus was in heaven, perfectly satisfied in the relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, had no need, no lack, had bazillions of angels serving and praising him. The universe was his by him and for him. And Jesus saw his bride in need. And he put all the status aside, all the comfort aside, and humiliated and restricted himself to becoming a human. A poor human with nothing. Born in a small town, the world was not, not worthy of him, let alone the small backwater town that he was raised in, constantly thrown in his face. And he went around teaching truth all the while being rejected and persecuted for the words that he said. And even though he tirelessly exhausted himself and poured himself out over and over and over, never giving up, never losing it, over and over and over, and still he was rejected by those he came to save by those he came to rescue. To the point by being betrayed by one that was closest to him. And when he was arrested on false accusations, the rest abandoned him. Some even denied him those he loved the most. But he still walked forward prepared to suffer. He withstood injustice and false accusations. He was mocked. He, had his, he was spit in his face. He was slapped and punched. He was then brought before an angry mob who demanded that he be killed. And to try and pacify them, they take him, strip his clothes off. They tie him to a post. They take a whip with strands of leather embedded with sharp pieces of bone and rock and lead. And they lacerate his back open to ribbons so that the sheer loss of blood would leave him completely in physical shock. And then they put a robe over him and a crown of thorns. And they dragged him back in front of a bloodthirsty mob who say, that's not enough. I want him executed in the most excruciating way we know of in our generation. And so they condemned him to be crucified. They put a, a, a heavy a cross on his back and in shock, he stumbled his way up through the crowds all the way up to Calvary. And then they laid him on this rough hewn timber and they drove nails through his wrists and nails through his feet. And then they brought this cross up and dropped it into a hole, leaving his entire body weight falling on the joint of where his ulna and radius come together, probably pinching his medial nerve, sending fire into his, into his limbs and curling over his maimed hands. And then he would pull himself up on those wounds, dragging his lacerated back up the cross just to get a breath as long as he could for hours until he suffocated to death, forgiving those he came to die for. And he died in full humiliation and mockery. 
That is how Jesus loves the church. It's not date night. It's full daily crucifixion to the needs of your wife and your children. That is what it means to love like Jesus. See here the logic here. Let's lift all of it out. Let's not leave out some pieces of the story. See, what it means within a husband and wife relationship, in both sides, is actually reflecting different parts of the Godhead, the triune God itself, both fully equally. And as a husband drains himself first and foremost before the Lord, secondly for his wife, thirdly for his children, as he pours himself out as a picture of Christ-like leadership. Ladies, let him do it. See, look, when we, we read passages like this, this is what our, our culture does. What our culture says is any, any idea of a husband leading in his home, our culture's squeamish about that. And I'll tell you why. Because our generation has such a tiny puny view of leadership in general. And our culture's view of leadership is that every time leaders will use their position to selfishly meet their own needs and dominate those over them. And so when they hear a husband leading in their home, they don't have a picture of Jesus they have a picture of a husband leveraging his position so that his needs are met and dominating those in his house so that that's what's happening. That's what happens. And the maybe greatest tragedy is when these words are used for a satanic view of leadership. But that's not Jesus' picture of leadership. Jesus defined leadership like this, Matthew 20. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. As even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His paradigm for leadership. Jesus is not afraid of leadership. He's not afraid to step into his role of leadership because he's going to do it to sacrifice himself for the benefit of those he's leading. He'll drain everything for him in obedience to the Father in order to bless those and lift up those and empower those and free those that he's leading. That's how Jesus uses his leadership. And so that's what he's calling in that to be played out, beautifully play, played out in the context of a marriage home, a marriage how did Jesus model his leadership? Man, one of the last things he did before he was arrested is he shocked his disciples. And he took off his outer cloak and he washed the grime off of their feet. That's what Jesus means by leadership. That's what the Bible means by leadership. It's serving. So what does it mean, men? If you're leveraging your leadership to not do things in your home that you think are beneath you, you don't understand how Jesus led. Men, if you're in your home and you're thinking you'll handle the finances and the career and your wife will handle 
the spiritual side of your family, and it's your wife driving, for one example, is the one driving your family to church, and your wife is the one driving the spiritual development of your children, and your wife is the one driving the spiritual conversations in your home, for starters, thank the Lord that you've been blessed with an incredible woman. And secondly, it's time to follow what Jesus said and step up and lead. Because the first thing, the first thing that this talks about when he's talking about Jesus' relationship to the bride, his first concern was the spiritual health of his bride. And so if you have an incredible godly partner, that's amazing. You say, well, she knows more than me. She's more experienced than me. Praise God, you're blessed with an incredible woman, a woman you can learn from and still step up and lead. If this, if you're using, leveraging a position to be served, not to serve, you're abusing your position. And what this is saying is ultimately your role in your house, you will not answer to your wife, you will answer to Jesus. Jesus came to serve, not be served. You say, well, look, I, I mean, I, I'm doing the best I can. I'm, I'm, I've got a lot, I've got a demanding career. I mean, I can't do all of it. And absolutely, you know what? You, you, you guys are, are partnered together. Maybe, um, maybe you are both working. Maybe just one of you is working. Yes, you're a partner together. And, and of course, men, um, it, absolutely. Your work is important. Ladies, men and women, your work is important. You've been called by God to glorify him through your work. That is absolutely important. But men, sometimes when we say I'm loving my family, sometimes when we say I'm loving my family by providing a roof over their head, that's code for my idol is my job and my family exists to support my idol. And your only object of worship is Jesus. Everything comes subordinate to that. Your second responsibility is your wife. Your third responsibility is your children. And your work is also important after that. We're called to love, to love our families, love our wives the way Jesus did. I want you to think of the logic of this. He ends with this idea of let um, husbands love your wife, wives respect your husbands. Can you just think of the beautiful logic of this? Because what this is talking about is deep down what a husband, what a man longs for is to be respected and admired by a woman. And deep down, a woman wants to be treasured, cherished by her husband. And so often what so beautifully can happen is as a husband chooses to cherish and treasure his wife and she feels like the world stops when she enters the room, that brings to the surface all the things she does respect and admire about him, which makes her admire him more, which makes her, him love her more, and it slowly draws them together in, in, into greater oneness. But what can so often happen is the opposite. When he neglects to cherish his wife, that makes her resentful and not have re respect and admiration for him, and then he feels disrespectful which makes him not cherish her anymore and they get farther and farther apart and that's just what the enemy wants because he wants you ladies to go to work and to find someone or go out into the world and find a man who does want to stop and listen to you and cherish you and he wants you men to go to work and see in admiration in the eyes of another woman and the enemy wants to rip and tear asunder what God has brought together. But the logic is when he says, look, that when, when a, a husband cherishes his wife and a wife admires her husband, it draws them together. And that means, here's the good news, either party can break a bad cycle. A husband can stop and say, no, I'm going to cherish my wife. And I'm going to make sure she feels cherished. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to just cherish by what I think it should be. I want her to feel cherished. I want her to feel served. I want her to feel like a priority. I want her to feel like she's captured my attention and she's captivated me. 
Or the wife says, you know what? I'm going to, before the Lord, I'm going to find and, and, and return to a place where I respect and admire my husband. And one can disrupt the cycle and draw the other in. It's a powerful logic that he's described. Something beautiful. And let me just, if you have maybe at some point in your Christian journey heard these words and they've been leveraged against you abusively, first of all, that is a tragedy. But pastorally, my encouragement to you would be don't leave God's word behind and retreat to the brokenness of the world. Recapture the actual life-giving truth of what the scripture is describing. How does this practically play out. Let's just bring this into our everyday lives and, and, and we'll wrap up. How does this practically play out, play out? This does not mean for a husband to step in and serve and lead as a servant in his home. This is what that does not mean. That does not mean that the husband is always right. That's not what that means. That's arrogance. It does not mean that the husband is better equipped for decision-making. Decision it does not mean there's something inherent in a husband that's better at making decisions. It doesn't mean that a husband is smarter. That's chauvinism. It doesn't mean that the, that the, that the husband makes all the decisions. That's just bad leadership. It doesn't even mean that the, these roles of a husband stepping into a leader as a leader and the, and the wife stepping up to follow her husband, it doesn't even mean that the husband is the chief tiebreaker. Well, we usually make decisions together, but when we disagree, the husband's the chief tiebreaker. And I've heard this described like that. That is such a, a over-reductionistic, thin view of what's being talked about here. What's being talked about is something far more beautiful of a husband leveraging everything he's got to serve his wife and his children and, and his wife honoring and respecting his efforts to do so. In fact, men and women as leaders, you know that often a wise leader actually defers the decision to someone around them that's better equipped for that decision. It's a wise husband that leverages his leadership to say, you know what, I'm not sure I'm seeing it the way you do, but I think you actually have a better perspective. You spent more time on this. You're closer to the situation. I'm going to defer to you on that. That's just good leadership. What it does not mean, please hear me, it says, when it says wives follow your husbands, that does not mean women follow all men. It's not talking about that. That's, again, that's chauvinism. Men, if you have a woman that is an authority over you at work or in another capacity, if you don't honor that woman, that is unbiblical and that's chauvinism. It does not mean girlfriends follow your boyfriends. A, girl, a boyfriend is not a leader over a girlfriend. That is not what this is talking about. There is not a covenant already in place before God to protect that. This is a very specific context that is displaying a picture of the Lord. Let me wrap up with this. Here's ultimately the motivator for this. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word reverence in Greek it's phobos. It's where we get the word phobia from. And sometimes we take this idea that's all through scripture of fear of the Lord and we reduce it too much to just, just reverence. It means more than that. It is a bigger, thicker concept of reverence and awe and fear. Each of us stand before Almighty God. And every time someone in the scripture stands before God, they are thrown to their faces feeling like they're about to die in the presence of Almighty God. And so can we take our own lives and in fear of the Lord, offer ourselves in submission first to him? Men, if you are not laying your life down for your wife, you may be laying your life down for your job, but if you're not laying your wife down for your wife, 
you will, that may not scare you now, but one day when you stand before God, you will think differently. Because she's first before she's your wife, she's God's daughter. And one day I have two daughters and one day I will entrust them to a husband and I will look at those men and I will, and I will have a conversation with them about how I was willing to give my life to serve them. And my expectation is that they will do no less, in fact, that they will exceed what I have done. Do you think your perfect heavenly father looks at your bride any way differently? She is the daughter-in-law of all, she is, uh, you are married to the daughter, you are the son-in-law of almighty God in addition to being the son of almighty God. Tremble in fear before the Lord. He expects his daughter to be served like he served the bride. Not doing so should cause fear and trembling before God. Ladies, you say, I don't know how to walk this out. You say, I, there's difficulty I have with my husband. And ladies, let me say, none of us, none of us men are worthy of this of you. But out of your love for Jesus and the fact that Jesus loves you so much and has a plan that he's working out in your life, and the pattern of Jesus, trust Jesus and watch that actually this will bring about, I believe, in your marriage what you've been longing for and praying for as you follow Jesus first and foremost. When Jesus was brought back, back out in front of the crowd, his back had been, he was just mutilated. I mean, probably not recognizable. And Pilate said a phrase that is echoed through eternity. He said, behold the man. You can walk down the Via Della Rosa in Jerusalem and there's an archway that dates back maybe 1900 years and those words are etched in that archway to this day in Jerusalem in Latin. Behold the man. And what stood there, I mean, it's so ironic, the, the most pitiful, barely living, brutalized version of a human being. But in showing that example, showing what a groom is willing to suffer for his bride, we see the greatest picture of masculinity. That's what a man does. He lays down his life every day. May we rise to that example as men and may we raise men that know how to do that. Can we go to the Lord in prayer? Can we just take some time as a church in just silent repentance before the Lord? Repentance is not that passage hit home, I should probably do something different. Repentance is when the Holy Spirit gets aside, inside of your heart and you change course and you live differently from then on. It's a miracle work that the Holy Spirit does. So would you ask the Lord to change you? Would you ask the Lord to conform you to the pattern of, of Jesus? Men, would you repent of not leading your families, if this is applicable to you, not leading your families? Maybe not leading your families as a spiritual leader and figuring out how to do that? Maybe not leveraging your role to serve? Maybe not prioritizing your family? Would you repent of that? Ladies, maybe today you feel the call from the passage to repent.
Do you want to walk in a way that honors and lifts up and supports and encourages your husband to lead? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out? And for those who hear this and truly feel brokenness and pain over what lies behind, it's because of the great bridegroom's bloodied body that there's no condemnation. So today you can turn it around and leave everything that's in the past in the past and walk forward. A new, fresh step may require some confession to your spouse, but you can walk forward made new, a new day. Let me pray over us. Lord Jesus, your word is a two-edged sword and it cuts deep. But Lord, the way to life is, Lord, when we feel the pain of conviction, we recognize it's you just wanting life for us. So would you call us to that? Would you speak over us, Lord? And for those that need to come and find Jesus as their Savior, and maybe they're not even sure that Jesus, they believe that Jesus did that for them, would you give them faith and let they would just surrender to you now? Would you work in our marriages, future marriages? Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna end a little bit differently. I want you to receive the beginning of this song and just hear this song, hear these words. It's just a time of reflection and prayer. And then we'll be cued to stand and finish the song together. But for now, just remain seated. Thanks for listening. Words. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.